Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Over the last several years, I've noticed that the mainstream media has started paying more attention to the pelvic floor. It used to be that you didn't hear all that much about it, except for the occasional mention of the importance of Kegel exercises. This is probably because talking about pelvic health has been kind of taboo. These muscles play a vital role in sexual, reproductive, urinary, and bowel function, all of which are topics that folks aren't used to discussing openly. But this is all changing in the era of social media, which has opened up more conversations about the pelvic floor. So let's talk about it. What is the pelvic floor anyway, and how can a better understanding of it help everyone, regardless of their sex or gender, improve their sexual health? For today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Alicia Jeffrey Thomas, who has been a pelvic floor physical therapist for seven years and has experience working with people of all genders and ages with pelvic health diagnoses. She has created and directed multiple social media platforms where she spreads evidence-based pelvic health information in humorous and relatable ways. Her page, The Pelvic Dance Floor, has over 1 million combined followers between Instagram and TikTok. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Alicia, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So I often like to start my shows with a question about definitions so that my listeners and I can all get on the same page about what we're going to be discussing. And today we're talking all about the pelvic floor. So what is the pelvic floor anyway? Yeah, so the pelvic floor is a few different things. So you have to think it's muscles, it's nerves, and it's fascial tissue. It's basically the bottom of your core center. So it runs from your pubic bone in the front all the way up underneath to your tailbone in the back. And it has basically four main roles. And when we talk about the roles of the pelvic floor, there's kind of four S's that we talk about. So it definitely provides a supportive role to your pelvic organs. It holds everything up and it works sphincterically. So thinking bowel and bladder function, it works for stabilization along with a lot of your core muscles. And then it also plays a large role in sexual function. So it does a lot of things. Now, you're a physical therapist and physical therapists specialize in a number of different areas from pediatrics to geriatrics to sports medicine and more. But you specialize in pelvic floor physical therapy. So of all the specialties you could pursue as a PT, what is it that drew you to this one? You know, where did your interest in the pelvic floor come from? I really looked at this as a way to help people in a very unique and underserved way. I feel like I was not necessarily drawn to the world of sports or working in a nursing home or working in a hospital. I loved the idea of being able to 
talk to people about things that no one else was asking them about and being able to really kind of piece together some of these really difficult topics for people and get them the quality of life that maybe they had lost when they had children or when they had a surgery or some other kind of event in their lives. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just out of curiosity, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy is something I haven't heard that much about until fairly recently. So do you have any sense of kind of how long the field has been around? Is it just something that we're talking more about now? And so that's why there's greater awareness. And, you know, how many pelvic floor physical therapists are there? Oof. Um, I mean, so it's definitely something that's been around since like the 90s, but it used to be a lot more limited in scope. It was looking a lot at Kegel exercises and, you know, retraining the pelvic floor just through a, a very isolated viewpoint. And then I feel like as time has gone on and more research has been done, we've looked at its role in, you know, not only urinary incontinence, but the bowel side of things, the sexual side of things. And so it's allowed for this big expansion. And of course, with social media and with just people talking more about it in general, it's drawn more people into the field to where I think in the last, like, I would say six, seven years, it's really kind of had this explosion in the media and and with people really learning that it's a thing that exists. I remember when I first started practicing, you know, I'd have people that would come in and I would say like, okay, like, do you know anything about why you're here? And they're like, nah, my doctor just sent me here and I have no idea. And now it's been a big shift in terms of people coming in and saying, no, I asked for this. I knew that I was having a baby and I wanted to take control of my health beforehand. And so while there's definitely been lots of growth in the field, I still think that there is a huge gap between the needs of the people and the number of providers that are out there. I don't have a number necessarily. I know that there's, you know, just more and more people trying to get into this field every day. Yeah, it has seemed like explosive growth in a pretty short period of time. I mean, I've been on sex research and sex therapy listservs for quite some time now, and you used to not hear much mention of this particular area, but now it's like every day someone is talking about referrals for pelvic floor physical therapists and so forth. So I think there's also much greater awareness within the sex therapy community of the importance of this kind of work. And so, yeah, we've we've definitely seen a pretty big shift in a short period of time. That said, the pelvic floor is something that most people don't know all that much about. And my guess is that for most people, they've probably only heard about it in the context of Kegel exercises, which were first described by Dr. Arnold Kegel back in the 1940s. And they were originally developed as a way of helping women to deal with urinary incontinence issues following childbirth. Now, since we don't talk about the pelvic floor all that much, I think there's this common misconception that pelvic floor issues are women's issues, but that's not the case. Everyone has a pelvic floor, whether they're male, female, cisgender, transgender. So as a pelvic floor specialist, what are some of the most common issues that you see and how might they be similar or different across the sex and gender of your patients? Sure. You break them down into kind of three main categories. So you have bladder issues, bowel issues, and sexual function issues. And so bladder issues, you know, you'll see stress incontinence, which is loss of urine with coughing, laughing, sneezing, working out, those types of things. And the vast majority of people that I see with that are women, cisgender women, but you'll definitely see 
after someone has a prostatectomy, for example, um, that's when they'll tend to experience stress incontinence there. I definitely see people uh, with overactive bladder, so urgency and frequency across the gender spectrum, and that can come from a variety of causes. Some of those are behavioral causes. Some of those are, you know, just an overactivity of the bladder itself. Some of those are more pelvic floor driven, you know, and then you also have bladder pain syndrome and different things related to urinary pain. On the bowel side of things, obviously everyone deals with constipation at some point in their life. And whether it's a chronic issue or whether it's a an intermittent thing, you know, we all kind of know that that happens. And that's a lot of that can be driven by the pelvic floor. You can have, you know, an outlet-based constipation where things may have moved through your system, but they're having a really hard time coming out. Or you can have fecal incontinence, or you can have a whole bunch of different things happening on that end. And then when you get into the um, sexual dysfunction aspect of things for people with vulvas and vaginas, you have issues with pain with penetration, whether that is kind of that initial entrance pain or deeper pain. And those can both be related to pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, amongst other things. You can have difficulty with arousal, and that can be across the spectrum, right? Because the pelvic floor muscles play a huge role in kind of maintaining blood flow to the genitals and allowing for the erectile tissue to do its job, for orgasm to happen, for proper lubrication, for a whole bunch of different things there. So it sounds like you see a lot of different things as a pelvic floor physical therapist. And I guess you never know exactly how your day is going to go because people could be coming in with uh, one of a whole bunch of different issues or maybe many issues all at once. But it's very helpful to know that there are some of these issues that you know might be similarly experienced across persons of different genders, but some of them there are also some kind of unique issues based on their own body. Now, there's a lot of bad information out there about the pelvic floor. So let's talk about some common misconceptions. Since I brought up the topic of Kegel exercises, let's start there. We know that Kegel exercises can be beneficial for many people, and they can potentially be helpful in treating a number of sexual health issues, from painful intercourse to erectile dysfunction to premature ejaculation. And as a result of this, there are some people who seem to think that everyone should be doing Kegels and that tightening up the pelvic floor is going to give everybody a boost in the bedroom. So what's the truth there? Are Kegels always a good idea? I would not say that they're a good idea for everyone. And I think that the conversation needs to switch from, oh, we need to have this very strong pelvic floor to we need to have a healthy and well-coordinated pelvic floor. If you kind of imagine your pelvic floor like any other muscle in your body, so take your bicep, for example, if you're doing a bicep curl, you need to be able to contract it all the way up and relax it all the way down. If you're only ever focusing on the contraction side of things, then you may not be moving through that full range of motion. And so that can lead to increased pain. It can lead to kind of dysfunction. So if your pelvic floor isn't relaxing all the way, then that can mean that you're not able to enter your bowel or bladder appropriately. You might not be able to get things to go inside that need to go inside, like uh, tampons or a penis or different things like that. You know, and so I think it's needs to be a more in-depth conversation than just a Kegel exercise. We need to look at the entire spectrum of muscle function. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to think about it. Now, speaking of Kegels, for people who want to do them the right way, 
What's your recommendation for how to go about doing this? I mean, of course, ideally, they'd consult with you or another pelvic floor physical therapist. But if that's not within their budget or ability, are there any sources that you would recommend? And, you know, should people be using the Kegel training devices and apps that kind of turn these exercises into a game? You know, what are your thoughts for just where to go for learning quality information about doing Kegel exercises? Absolutely. So... There are a lot of pelvic floor therapists on the internet now. And so, you know, there's definitely resources on YouTube. There's resources through Instagram and TikTok and a bunch of other things where we'll break down what a pelvic floor contraction is supposed to look like and feel like. And I tend to recommend getting in touch with your body before you add any extra technology in. So, you know, if you are comfortable with it, doing kind of like a self-muscle assessment, and that could be something as simple as taking a hand mirror and literally putting it in front of your genitals and saying, okay, when I do what I think a Kegel is, what happens, right? And that way we can look to make sure that we're isolating the correct muscles, that it's just kind of that sphincteric muscle pulling in and lifting up um, without engaging your glutes or your inner thigh muscles or your abs, um, making sure you're not holding your breath. There's a bunch of different things that you want to kind of think about before you go and say, oh, I'm going to go and buy, you know, one of these Kegel exerciser devices that turn it into a game. Because while I think that there's a place for that for, you know, certain people and it's very motivating and it can surely help with compliance with exercises, it's really easy to fool some of them. And so you could be doing what you think is right. But that might not be the right thing. And you might be creating, you know, worse muscle patterns that then will have to be undone. Yeah. And that was kind of going to be my next question of like, what are the risks of doing Kegel exercises in the wrong way? And can that lead to new problems that weren't there? Or does it exacerbate existing problems that might be there? You know, what are the risks of doing Kegel exercises the wrong way or also overdoing them? The first thing you have to kind of think about is if you're not doing something correctly, but you're putting in a lot of time and effort into it, you're not going to see the results that you want. And so even on the low end of things, you won't get better and you'll get frustrated and you'll say, ah, you know, to heck with these Kegel exercises, they're not going to do anything for me. On the other side of things, you know, if we're contracting the wrong muscle groups and we're then creating increased tension in our abs or we end up bearing down instead of pulling up and in, you know, that can contribute to more pelvic floor issues. I've seen people who have thought that they were doing Kegel exercises correctly for years and I say, okay, go ahead and do a Kegel. And they're literally pushing my finger out of them, which is the exact opposite of what we want to happen. And, you know, I don't want that person to then end up with a prolapse or more urinary incontinence, um, you know, thinking that they need to be doing these things all the time every day. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point because what we see in the research in terms of when Kegel exercises are linked to sexual and other benefits for the individual, it's when they're done correctly and consistently, and they're given very detailed instructions in advance and sometimes some kind of training. So, you know, if you're just going about this and not really paying attention to what the instructions and details are, it can potentially cause problems that weren't there or prevent problems from getting better. Now, I think another common misconception about the pelvic floor is that pelvic floor dysfunction is something that only affects older adults. But pelvic floor issues can affect persons of any age, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that and also just in general how pelvic floor issues might change or how our pelvic floor needs might change across the lifespan? 
Of course. So you can start even as young as childhood. There are children who see pediatric specific pelvic floor therapists. And so, you know, that tends to happen when we have persistent bedwetting or chronic constipation, you know, and so they're working completely externally with these kiddos to get their pelvic floor muscles to be able to coordinate in the right ways. But it's usually related to kind of that toileting function. Once you move into, you know, kind of like your early adulthood, prior to having kids, the majority of the time people's pelvic floors are actually going to be too tense if they're having problems. And so that's where we tend to see a lot of issues with vaginismus or vulvodynia or bladder pain, interstitial cystitis type of symptom. Um, And that all tends to be related to that short, tense pelvic floor presentation. After someone has a child, they tend to have a little bit more weakness on their muscle, but they can still simultaneously have tension while having weakness. And so you kind of have to like look at what's the tone of the muscle versus what's the strength of the muscle and being able to kind of coordinate both of those together. When it comes to the younger population of people with penises, uh, we'll tend to see what's called chronic prostatitis or chronic pelvic pain syndrome. Um, And again, it can kind of be that short, tight pelvic floor muscle presentation that presents as pain. It can present with, you know, urinary urgency and frequency, difficulty emptying, things like that. Once we then shift into the middle-aged to older adult category, we're having another big hormonal shift, um, especially with people with vulvas and vaginas, to where then we'll start experiencing issues related to menopause. So maybe atrophy of the vulvar and vaginal tissue. And so that can create its own set of urinary issues, increase in frequency of UTIs, urgency and frequency of urination, stress incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse. Not that those things can't happen when you're younger, but it's just like driven by slightly different things. And then, like I said, also in that older adult population on the people with penises side, if you have a a prostatectomy or some other surgery, sometimes that can also affect the urinary system as well. And it's you know, kind of interesting to point some of that out because the number one admission uh, reason for admission to nursing homes is urinary incontinence. And so this can be really important for looking at pelvic floor issues throughout the lifespan and making sure that we are, you know, paying attention and helping these people so that they can maintain that quality of life and independence for as long as they can. Yeah. And I think you just made a fantastic case for why pelvic floor physical therapists are so important and why we need to talk more about the pelvic floor because you have all different kinds of issues that can arise with it at different points in our lives and paying attention to it can help us to maintain better quality of life. Now, you're a very active educator on social media, and you know as well as I do that social media can be a great source of information or a source of great information, I should say. But it can also be a cesspool of terrible information. You know, for example, I recently heard about this idea of perineal sunning, where people are basically going out and they're tanning their perineums, you know, that area between your genitals and your anus. And supposedly they think that this promotes health and well-being. And like, that's just fucking weird. Um, But I'm curious, you know, what are some examples of other pelvic floor or sexual health myths and misconceptions that you've seen pop up on social media where you want to set the record straight? Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely the, you know, vaginal steaming crowd that, you know, 
not to to (laughs) step on any goop CEO's toes or anything like that, but, you know, that can lead to issues with infection. I've seen people get burns from steaming, you know, so there's, there's a whole bunch of different risks associated with that and not really any of the benefits that people are kind of touting that it will actually give you. I've definitely seen a lot of bladder health myths that have kind of gone around on the internet in terms of making sure that you're always going to the bathroom any opportunity that you get um, or that you're, you know, pushing to make sure that all the urine is out of your bladder. And both of those things kind of in combination can be really bad for your pelvic floor instead of kind of thinking about keeping your bladder on, you know, kind of a healthy schedule of going to the bathroom about every three hours during the day and then focusing more on relaxation of the pelvic floor in order to fully empty out. And then, of course, there's the side of the internet that loves to talk about hovering over the toilet when they're out in public and thinking that they're going to get, you know, all kinds of germs and diseases when in all actuality, if you actually talk to anybody who's a microbiologist or an infectious disease, you know, specialist, then they're going to tell you that it's perfectly safe to sit on a toilet. And it's actually incredibly helpful for your pelvic floor to sit to fully relax everything. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Yes, there are so many ideas out there on the internet that we could really just benefit from having a fact check of because people are getting all kinds of incorrect information all the time. Now, speaking of, you know, these sort of myths and misconceptions and other things, I'm also curious about what your take is on some of the sex toys that are out there that are supposedly designed to help with pelvic floor issues. So I'm thinking of things like Benoit balls and yoni eggs and so forth. What's your thought on those particular products in terms of are they helpful augments when it comes to dealing with pelvic floor issues or not? So it depends. I first want to look at the material that the device is made out of. So if it's made out of anything that's porous, I don't really want it to be going up and inside a body cavity um, because that can increase infection risk. When it comes to just, you know, vaginal weights in general, I tend to use them pretty rarely in my practice. It's not how the pelvic floor is really designed to function. You don't want it to just be walking around just clenched up all the time as you're walking around and doing your chores. You want it to be able to dynamically respond to the situation. And so the times that I'll use those are when I'm working with someone who has an issue with proprioception of their pelvic floor when they're doing specific activities. So sometimes I'll have somebody use a very, very, very lightweight, but do, you know, a squat or a lunge or some other functional movement like that. And then they have a little bit better awareness of, ooh, maybe I am kind of bearing down or holding my breath or not bracing my core or pelvic floor correctly because then we get that dropping out feeling. But otherwise, I don't think it's necessary to use a a Benoit ball or a jade egg or anything like that and just walk around with it all day. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful to know. Now, I have another question for you about your experience being a an educator on social media. Now, clearly people seem to like what you're doing if you have close to a million followers across some of these different platforms. But, you know, it's also challenging to be an educator in the sexuality space and dealing with some of these other sensitive issues on social media because there are so many restrictions around what can be said and concerns about getting banned or having your account suspended. So I'm just sort of curious as to what your experience has been like and, you know, whether this is an issue that you've kind of had to grapple with in terms of like how you navigate censorship issues on social media. Oh, absolutely. So I 
have somehow been doing better at this lately. But when I first started out, it seemed like any time that I would try to talk about anything related to sexual health, I would get that post removed. You know, I could talk about going to the bathroom all I wanted to. But the second that I mentioned sexual pain or arousal or orgasm or anything like that, that was a flagged word and something would get taken down immediately. And I would appeal it and kind of 50% of the time something would get put back up. But, you know, it would be really frustrating when you put a lot of time and effort into something and you get it taken down through censorship on the app. And I will say, I love TikTok for a lot of reasons, but they tend to be a little bit more on top of taking down content uh, than Instagram, at least in my experience. I've adapted. I, you know, will use phrases and words and change the spelling of words to try to get around certain sensors. But it's kind of constantly frustrating to me that people can put out content that is overtly sexual or that's misinformation that has these same types of words and it stays up. But when I try to do a correction or try to give, you know, full anatomical education about what's happening with a given topic, that's what tends to get censored. So I can just only hope that that improves in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can only hope. And, you know, I can totally relate to everything you said. It is so frustrating that there is so much overtly sexual content on there, but talking about sex, like, whoa, like that's somehow like next level and you shouldn't be allowed to do that. So it's an issue I have to navigate every day, but I appreciate you sticking with it despite all the challenges because we need people out there who are providing responsible science-based sex ed. So this has been absolutely fascinating, and I am really looking forward to our next conversation where we're going to dive into treating pelvic floor issues. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Alicia. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and follow you on the socials? Absolutely. So I am on Instagram and TikTok as The Pelvic Dance Floor. (laughs) The Pelvic Dance Floor. I love it. And I have to imagine you're going to write a book someday on all of this, right? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I think you would be so good at it and it would be wildly successful. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What you want and be sure to follow alicia on the socials at the pelvic dance floor thanks again for listening until next time 